Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. There's a a rule in show business, and it kind of goes like this. Never follow children, animals, or Ryan Gosling. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you came face to face with an opportunity, a choice, or perhaps even a calling? And this choice has the ability to maybe change your life forever. Um, in the midst of all of that, you kind of have to come to grips with your inadequacies and your doubts and your fears. Well, I think everyone can relate to this at some level. I know it happens to me. It happens to you. And it happened to this biblical figure named Moses. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Exodus chapter 4. I'd like to invite you to turn to it if you'd like on page 58 and 59 of the Bibles around you. And I'll be reading that. So would, would you all stand please? I'm going to go uh, verses 1 to uh, 17. So hold on. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me? Or listen to me and say, the Lord did not, appear, did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff and into his hand. This said the Lord is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now, put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, go, I will help you speak and will teach you what you say, what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. This is the word of the Lord. And you can be seated. Thank you, Manuel. Hi, everybody. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is uh, Kent Carlson, and I'm trying to turn my iPad on. on. Um, uh, I used to be one of the pastors here, and it's always good to come. By the way, uh, as long as we're on the topic of Ryan Gosling, the very best movie of all time by Ryan Gosling is Lars and the Real Girl. And so if you haven't seen Lars and the Real Girl, it's a great Mother's Day uh, movie. So um, just... Watch it and don't complain to me afterwards. But it's a awesome, awesome movie. But uh, at any rate, um, it's always good to come back here and, and be uh, part uh, with you in this, uh, to be able to worship with you and share from God's Word. Um, I really love this church, and, and I'll tell you why. 
Um, I get to, uh, with my job, travel a lot. Some of you know that. And I work with a lot of different churches, a lot of different pastors and Christian leaders throughout North America and increasingly o- overseas. And you should know this, and I think you have a sense of this. We've talked about it here a number of times. The church is in a time of great transition. Um, we're at the, what many people refer to as the end of Christendom, which that means not, of course, the end of Christianity, but the, we're the end of Christendom. Christendom being where the Christian faith is at the center of society and directs the cultural and political and social kind of center and everything, you know, kind of comes out from that. We're, we have been losing that position for some time, and it's not a bad thing that we've been losing it. Uh, state churches, of course, throughout Europe have gone down. Canada is about 20 years ahead of us in North America right now on the both coasts and in all metropolitan areas. The end of Christendom is very uh, obvious, meaning that now we are increasingly on the margins, um, which is where Christianity began and where it did a stunning and beautiful job of witnessing to the reality and the power of the risen Christ and where the church flourished in, in, in beautiful ways when we have been associated with power, cultural, political, sometimes even military power. It has harmed uh, the church and its witness for, for, for Jesus. So we're at this time at the end of Christendom, and um, just something we should know. We haven't figured out what to do about that yet. But almost everybody, at least uh, many people at least, are asking these kind of questions. Some churches are afraid um, and hunkering down. A uh, big bad world out there is uh, dangerous to them, so they're hunking down, hunkering down. They're afraid. They're trying to maintain the status quo, trying to hold on to what was. Some of those churches will survive just fine for a while. They'll keep on existing, uh, but they will be increasingly ignored by the non-church population. And if you have many non-church people who live in your heart and with whom you are in contact regularly, you know this already. 60 to 70% of non-church people, and that number is rising, will never come to church again. As, it is, as church is currently structured. Millennials, Generation Z, are leaving the church in droves. And when you care about those people, when they live in your heart, those outside the walls of the church, our, our, our neighbors, our work associates, our family members, uh, you begin to realize that we have no choice but to ask those foundational questions about the church at the end of Christendom. We have no choice. And many churches are asking those foundational questions of what the church must begin to look like in North America to have effective witness in, in this world. And Oak Hills, I just want you to know, you are one of those churches who are asking those foundational questions. I know Mike very well, spent a lot of time with him, of course, and uh, I know the pastoral staff, the entire staff, the elder board, administrative council, small group leaders, and pretty much all of you. You know that this is not a time in history to look back the wish for what once was. It is a time to look forward, to discern the guidance of the Spirit of God in, in, in our midst. People outside the community of the church, they are increasingly disinterested in the church as it is currently structured. And that's not changing. They're not disinterested in God, by the way. Uh, they think Jesus is actually pretty cool. They, they hunger for some kind of transcendent, some kind of uh, authentic spirituality. In reality, like all people, they hunger for God. But they are giving up believing that they can find that in the church. And uh, these uh, people outside uh, the, the family of God who are increasingly uninterested in ever coming back to church again, they're obviously not in our church services. They're not in our small group meetings. They're not in our leadership meetings and around our tables. So we don't often hear them. Their voices are not heard. And, and so consequently, we don't understand them. And so to be the church at the end of Christendom, we have to go out there to where they are because they're not coming here. And we have to go out there demonstrating the beautiful and transforming way of Jesus. We have to learn to live our communal life of transformation out there. And there is one quality that will be required in order to do this well, and that is courage. Courage to ask the tough questions. Courage to face our own fears. Courage to live vulnerable lives of authentic transformation with each other. And courage to take our faith seriously and nurture and be alive to the presence of Christ in our midst. And I simply want to say that... uh, that I know 
Mikey and the leadership of Oak Hills have that courage, and I know that you all have that courage, and I talk about you wherever I go, and I love being with you, and so thank you for the opportunity I get to come back and, and play with you guys. Now, let's uh, scatter applause. Okay. Opera applause. One robust one over here. Um, now, let's get our, our passage today. I love this series that Mikey and, and Manuel and the team have put together, Questions God Asks, because we don't usually think about God asking questions, because we always think, well, he's got all the answers. And so most people, I think, think of God as telling us stuff, telling us stuff to do and stuff to not do, you know, the thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And obviously he does that, but God, I think obviously as well, is very, very smart, like the smartest of all. And he knows human beings really well. And he knows that the best learning comes when we actually learn things ourselves. And, and so we ask questions. And sometimes, if not usually, the very best thing a teacher can do is to ask the right question. Because that forces us to have to grapple with a deeper truth. Forces us to have to do the work ourselves. And I think God wants us to do the work here. So in a world where so many people live with fear and a deep-seated belief that we are not good enough, that we're inadequate, that we don't measure up, that the task is too much for us, that we have little value to bring, that we're going to screw it all up and fail. In a world of such not-enoughness, God comes to us and asks this simple question, what do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? He's not telling us what to do here. He's asking us a simple question. What do you have that I can use? And it doesn't have to be impressive. It doesn't have to be better than anyone else's. He's just asking us one simple question. What do you have that I can use? What's in your hand? That's all. Nothing profound there at all. What do you have in your hand? And the rest of this message, and for the rest of this message, as a, a way to address authentically and practically the question, what do you have in your hand? Here's what I'd like us to do together. And just you can kind of work on this right now. I'll give a moment to be silent about it, to, to think about this further. I'd like us to do this one thing together. Let's each one of us reflect right now on the one thing that looms before us in our lives today that feels too big for us. That when we think of that one thing that we're facing, we feel inadequate to the task. So think about that. It may be a broken relationship that feels unresolvable. It may be a leadership challenge at work that feels like it's way too big for us. It may be a sin or an addiction or a character issue that has overwhelmed us, just knocked us down for years. It may be insecurity that's crippling, fear or anger, maybe uh, a necessary job change that's happening, or promotion, or a move to another city, or a do-over, or start over somewhere, someplace. It may be a financial burden that feels at this moment insurmountable, unfixable. It may be, and I suspect this will be more common as we are open and listening to God, it may be a ministry or an area of service that God is calling you into that you feel entirely incapable of fulfilling. It may be some challenge that you have before you, some obstacle, some doubt, some task, some looming obligation that you've been ignoring or uh, in denial about. Whatever it is, let's just reflect together, each one of us, on that one thing that is looming in front of us. And I think some of you even have journals with you. You can start writing that in there if you so desire. Because everything we talk about in the minutes we have left today Let's consider it all in the context of this one looming, difficult, maybe oppressive, overwhelming, seemingly impossible, scary thing that we have to deal with. So take a moment and think about that one thing that intimidates you and stirs up that not-enoughness in you. So actually write it down if you want to, if you have a journal, just a piece of paper. I'm just going to be silent for about 30 seconds, so think about it.
So as you think of that thing, as you write it down, here's what I want us to reflect on. This is kind of the big thing, the big thought for this whole talk. God asking you, what do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? What do you have that you can give to me to use? Now, before we get into all that, we need to spend a bit of time in the passage that Manuel read earlier and some of the uh, uh, context before that. We're going to reflect on the person of Moses. Now, Moses is the central, uh, at least one of the central uh, figures of the Older Testament and the Hebrew people. Abraham is seen as the father of the Hebrew people since it was Abraham who God called and promised that he would make a great people from his descendants and through his descendants all the nations of the earth would will be blessed. But it was Moses who was used by God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt in the central event of the Older Testament the Hebrew people known as the Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt. Moses was also the one to whom God gave his law, the Torah, uh, after the exodus from Egypt, and Moses is the one who guided his people through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Well, Moses was a Hebrew uh, Israelite born in slavery in Egypt, and the numbers of the Hebrews were growing rapidly in Egypt during that time. So the Pharaoh was a little worried about the numbers of the Hebrews growing, uh, increasing in number too rapidly, and feared that if they reached sufficient numbers, they might revolt and overthrow his kingdom, and he didn't want that. So the Pharaoh issued an order that every male Hebrew, every male Israelite that was born, must be thrown into the Nile River. When Moses' mother, uh, Jacobed, um, is her name, not, by the way, one of the more popular biblical names for baby girls uh, these days, unless you just have named your daughter that, and man, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I said that. Not, not, um, it's a great name, but whatever. Uh, but she gives birth to Moses, and she hit him for three months. But it was too risky to keep him any longer, so she puts him in this basket and floats it out onto the Nile among some reeds along the shore, technically, I guess, obeying the Pharaoh's command in a sense. So the, um, the Moses' sister, though, Miriam, she kept her eye on him and saw that the Pharaoh's daughter found the Hebrew boy, in the basket and felt sorry for him. And so Miriam saw all this going on and she approached Pharaoh's daughter and asked her if she would like her to go find a Hebrew woman to nurse the boy. And the Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, I would like that. So, of course, Miriam brought Moses back to his mother and Jacobed nursed her son. When he got older, Jacobed um, brought Moses, as it was arranged, back to the Pharaoh's daughter. And the Pharaoh's daughter raised Moses as her son, and she named him Moses, which means draw out, because she drew him out of the water. So Moses grows up in the Pharaoh's palace with all the benefits of royalty and becomes, by all accounts, pretty full of himself, as princes often can become. But, uh, of course, you know all that from the, the Disney movie. Somewhere along the way, after Moses is an adult, he sees an Egyptian beating up an Israelite slave, and he goes to the defense of the Israelite and kills uh, the Egyptian. Well, the next day, he sees two Israelites fighting, and he goes and breaks up the fight. And one of the Israelites says to Moses, essentially, who died and made you king? Who gives you the right to, to do this? Are you going to kill us too? Well, Moses at this point gets kind of afraid because he realizes that the word is out now on the street that he killed the Egyptian. And indeed, the Pharaoh heard about it and tried to have Moses killed. But Moses escapes into the desert, gets married, and becomes a shepherd. So, the first third of his life, Moses lives in the splendor and the luxury of the palace. But the second third of his life, Moses lives in the desert, in obscurity, a foreigner in a foreign land knowing neither his home among the Egyptians nor his home among the Israelites. Essentially, the first third of his life, he grows up thinking he's somebody. The second third of his life, he begins to understand that he's nobody, which is probably the more accurate perception. And the last third of his life, he's going to find out what God can do with a nobody. Well, during... This time when Moses is living in obscurity in the desert, the Israelites are calling out to God to deliver them from the horrors and the suffering of slavery in Egypt. And God hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears the cries of the Israelites uh, in slavery, as he always does, by the way. This is why we, as followers of Christ, should always be attentive to the cries of the oppressed and the marginalized and have compassion 
and bend our ear toward them and our lives and our will and our bodies and our action towards them because this is what God is like. This is who God is. God purposes to deliver his people from slavery. And you can see why the story of the Israelites crying out to God for deliverance from slavery and oppression and God delivering them became the predominant biblical imagery during the 300 plus years of slavery in America. This deliverance, this this exodus motif, motif was the predominant imagery of the abolition movement that brought about the end of slavery and continued throughout almost a century of Jim Crow laws in in our country, and a half century of lynchings, and essentially a time of uh, apartheid in our own country. Throughout the civil rights movement, this imagery was always used. See, the Bible is a book of the cries of the oppressed calling out to God for deliverance, and God hears. The Bible is a book so often written by people who are oppressed to people who are oppressed, who are calling out, for deliverance. It's actually kind of hard to understand the Bible when we read it from a place of power because it is a book written from a place of the oppressed. And God hears. And what God determines to do is to have a nobody be his means of deliverance. And this nobody, of course, is Moses. Out in the desert, all by himself, taking care of sheep and goats. And there's something to, to learn in this that's really important, I think. This work of deliverance is God's. It's not ours. It is God who hears the cries of the Israelites and initiates their deliverance, not Moses. God is never presented in the Bible as a passive God who's kind of waiting around for something to do that strikes his fancy in the moment. To the contrary, the scripture present God as an active God, an initiating God. He's a missionary God. He's a God on mission. He's the one who raises up Abraham and creates a new people. He's the one who raises up Moses and delivers his people. He's the one who raises up Joshua and and David and the prophets and all, all the others. He is the one who sends his son Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. He is the one who raises up his church and sends us all out into the world. God is the initiating God, the God on mission. He is already in our neighborhoods working. He is already working at the restaurants where we eat. He's working in our places of employment, in our families. And he sends us out, encourages us to join him in this mission. The Christian faith makes absolutely no sense when it is limited to or even centered on meeting together on a Sunday morning. In other words, church is something we go to. The Christian faith only makes sense when we are joining God on mission. And here's the comforting news. It's good news. We don't have to make anything happen. Something is already happening. God is always initiating. God is working his deliverance all the time. He goes before us. He's always on mission. The kingdom of God, the rule of God is real. It's active. It's always operational. In Narnian terms, Aslan is on the move. We don't make it happen, ever. We just live attentive to what God is doing, and we join him there. And this is what God calls Moses to do. Moses just minding his own business, out in the desert, and in the section before Manuel read from Exodus 4, Moses sees, and many have heard the story, this bush in the desert that's burning up. But it's not like... Burning up. It's just like fire coming from the, the bushes not burning up. So he goes, that's interesting. He goes over to get a better look. And the angel of the Lord speaks to him out of the burning bush. Uh, the angel of the Lord is another way of saying the Lord. You know, Yahweh. Moses is having here an encounter with the very presence of the living God. And here is what God says in uh, Exodus chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 5 and Maybe skip around a little bit. But he says, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. 
So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and all sorts of other people. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God in this mountain. Moses said to them, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what's his name? Then what should I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I have promised to bring you up. Out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites and all these others, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. So it's a good thing to picture this. You know, take it maybe out of what we've learned if we were part of the church growing up in Sunday school and, and such, and to take a look at it in kind of real life. Moses is a shepherd. Okay, that, that means he takes care of sheep and goats. He has spent years in the desert, 40 years maybe, uh, in relative isolation. He's been separate from all that has gone on in Egypt. He's separate from his Egyptian family. He's separate from his uh, Israelite family. He's living with his father-in-law Jethro and his family in the desert. And this burning bush tells him to he's going to deliver an entire nation of Israelites from 400 years of slavery. So this really is mega weird. This is, and the, this is borderline absurd. Uh, I'm thinking that not many of us have had experiences like that. Remember, I want us to be thinking about that one thing, that difficult, looming, impossible, scary thing that lies in front of you. And think about, about all that in, in, in light of what we hear here. But I doubt that thing, as difficult as it is, as impossible as it seems to us, compares to what Moses is being told to do here, what Moses is being given here. I'm not sure when Moses is hearing this, if he's just standing there with his mouth open, and he's hearing these seemingly absurd things that God is saying, and that Moses is supposed to do, and he's kind of struck dumb. He's just there with his mouth open, a little drool coming out of his mouth. He can't talk. Or, he's continuing to try to interrupt. He's going, but, you know, but, but, but God just keeps on talking, and Ignoring him, like a Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman or, or something. Sorry if any of you are Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. I was once. I was terrible at it. But but finally God, no, I wasn't. I was a rainbow vacuum cleaner. The traps of dust and water every 24 hours, Mrs. Smith. Never mind. But finally, though, God is silent for a moment, and Moses is able to come up with something to protest about, and he says, essentially, what if they don't believe me? And a side note, Moses you can bet a lot of money that nobody, nobody's going to believe you at first. But then here comes a question from God in answer to, what if no one believes me? He says, what do you have in your hand? Moses goes, uh, a staff? You know, I'm a shepherd. We all have staffs. That's what shepherds have. We Just a piece of wood kind of curved at the end. I carved my initials in it here, but it's kind of worn out. And I've been thinking about finding another one. This one's showing its age. Jethro of the Clampett clan, my father-in-law, he's... He's got a pretty cool one. He's got a little goat head uh, etched into it. Throw it down, says God. Just throw it down. So Moses, okay, throws it down, and all of a sudden it becomes a snake. Just there on the ground. And God says, pick it up by the tail, which is not a smart thing to do with a snake. I mean, they can't, like, come back up and, like, bite your hand, but they can move around a bit and bite other parts of you. 
And so it's not a, not a good thing. So, but he picks it up and it becomes a staff again. Uh, and so then God says, well, okay, now one more thing. Put your hand inside your, you know, shepherd's bathrobe deal and then bring it out. And it's leprous. There's leprosy all over. And then he says, go put it back in, brings it out and it's clean. Uh, God's kind of just doing magic tricks with, with Moses here. And if, he says, if that doesn't impress everybody, then grab some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and it'll turn into blood. That'll freak him out. Well, all that is impressive. But Moses has the most common phobia of all time, including today, back then, including today, the fear of what? Public speaking, right? I'm not that good at talking, Moses says. God says, look, I made the mouth. I made the, I made the eyes. I made everything. It's not a problem. That Moses is out of excuses, so he just says, hey, send someone else. Can't you send someone else? I don't want to do it. And God, at this point, gets just a little bit angry. So God says, well, okay, we'll have Moses' brother Aaron help him. Aaron's a good talker. You're making this difficult, Mo, but I'll accommodate you. I'll talk to you, then you talk to Aaron, and Aaron will talk to the people. I'd rather cut out the middleman, uh, but it's your choice. But let's get this done. Grab your staff. We've got some magic to perform. So in the minutes we have left, we need to ask the question, what do we do with all that? That's the story. Again, keep in mind that one overwhelming, difficult, and seemingly impossible thing you have looming in front of you as we reflect together on what we can discern from this passage. Here's my first thought. And we've already touched on this, but it deserves some emphasizing, so I want to emphasize it. God is already at work. Our job is to attend and to enter in. God is already at work. Our job is to attend and to enter in. This is a crucial and foundational truth, and it is good news if we can bring ourselves to begin to believe it. And by believing it, I mean trusting it. And by trusting it, I mean living as though it is true. All true beliefs are acted out. There's no such thing as a belief that isn't acted out. That's called a profession or some kind of statement that I'm making. When you believe something, action always follows. The converse is also true. Every action that we engage in comes from a true belief. So I'm saying, believe this. Make it something you trust and live as though it is true that God is already at work and our job is to attend and enter in. There is a very heavy burden that many people feel because when they look at what they need to do, the calling they have, perhaps, the task at hand, the obstacle, the vision for something, the sense of an assignment, when many people look at that thing, they often feel a sense, understandably, of being overwhelmed. Mostly because they often feel as though the whole task is up to them. They have to envision it. They have to plan it. They have to convince people of it. They have to overcome all odds and be something they know they are not in order to accomplish it. And so many people are discouraged and hopeless before they even get started. And often we just give up. We give in to our sense of inadequacy and inability. But let's remember again that God is not sitting around in some celestial office somewhere, handing out assignments and waiting for us to report, come back and report on how well we did, and then doing an employee evaluation on us. God is active. He's the initiating one. He's the one on mission. The kingdom of God, the rule of God is real. It is active. It is advancing. It is totally operational. As I said earlier, in Narnian terms, God is on the move. Aslan's on the move. Our job is to attend to his presence wherever we are. Discover what he is up to. And he is most likely up to something all the time, most places. And we join him. And we use whatever we have in our hand, our abilities, our love, our wisdom, our physical strength, our time, our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, our authenticities, truth, whatever we have in our hand to join him on that mission. Uh, I take a lot of Uber and Lyft uh, rides in, in, my, in my traveling and on those rare occasions when I'm at the top of my game, I, I try to live with this belief that God is already at work in this uh, 
uh, driver's life. Uh, when, and, um, and, uh, and, and so then I just ask questions. Uh, I keep uh, my, my heart uh, open to what is going on in, in the miracle of this person sitting next to me. And I said that sitting next to me in the last service. And they go, you mean you get in the front seat with a Lyft driver and an Uber driver? And I didn't know you weren't supposed to. Uh, and that's not that you're not supposed to. I just always get in the front seat, so I just do that. And usually he's got stuff there, and he shoves it in the back, and it's just easier to talk at that point. And so many times we start talking about the weather or what it's like working for Uber or Lyft. The, the conversation starts to shift, and we start talking about family and finances and making it in the world and hope and dreams and children and marriages and failures and starting over and sadness and joy. And as we get in this conversation, I just find myself drawing, being drawn into the presence of this miracle, this sacred person. And I discover God's already there. God's been working in this person's life. There's, there's stuff going on there. I'm just along for the ride, so to speak. This is the same at any restaurant we go to. Our place of work. Our neighborhood. God's already there. He is already at work. We don't bring him with us. He's already there. We get in in cahoots with what he's doing. Because he's a missionary God. He's a God on mission. And he invites us to join us. We don't have to create anything. We don't have to make anything happen. Our job is to attend to his active and loving presence in this world. Sure, we bring whatever we have in our hand. We bring our passion, our enthusiasm, our energy. But we're not making it happen. Second thought I'd like us to reflect on is we are not enough. We're not enough. Let's think about this for a moment. When we feel inadequate, maybe it's because we actually are inadequate. You can like write that on your refrigerator if, if you'd like to. Maybe we actually don't have the natural ability to accomplish this thing. But what bothers us about this actually we don't like being adequate because, well, we want to be adequate. We want to be enough. We, we want to be able to accomplish things in our own power. But here's just the truth, and we should probably get used to this truth. Much of the time, we simply are not adequate for the job. And it's, I think, a really important thing for us to learn this. Or else we will always be trying to pretend that we're adequate. And the more we pretend, the more we have to keep pretending. And we're going to start after a while being afraid that some people are going to be finding out that I'm pulling off a con job on the rest of the world a little bit. And so we keep on pretending out of fear of getting found out. And after a while, what happens? We're not fooling anybody any longer. People know we don't know what we're doing. And I want to say this with gentleness. Because for most of us, Talking about our inadequacies, our inabilities, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, and all the fear that goes along with that, failings, wounds, all the shame. This is a sacred place. I know this. You know this. There's a lot of hurt there, a lot of fear. And we have been taught by our culture that it is shameful to be inadequate. So I want to take my shoes off here, uh, metaphorically, because I don't want to bend down. Um, and I double-knotted them, so it would be a hassle. But I realize this is sacred ground, and I want to speak with gentleness. But we should learn to be courageous enough to realize that when we are preoccupied with our inadequacies, our inabilities, our not-enoughness, even our shame, we are making the story to be about us. And there is a kind of self-absorption in all that. Think of God calling Moses. You almost get the sense that God is losing patience with Moses. You don't get the sense. He is losing patience with Moses. And all this talking about how he's not good enough and no one will listen to him. Why don't you send somebody else? And God's saying, do you think I don't know that you're not enough? I've known you since before you were born. There is no dark place in your life that I am not intimately acquainted with. 
I know it all. I've seen it all. I know every thought, every action. I know things nobody else knows, and I know things you don't even know. I'm the only one, actually, who knows perfectly your limitations. But I've chosen you anyway, and I will be with you. What is needed in this big looming thing we have in front of us is not adequacy. It's courage. Courage to keep going even when we are not sure what to do. Courage to keep going even when we feel that there's no way I have the, I have the chops for this. Courage to have confidence that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, that if God is at work, our inadequacy is essentially irrelevant. Courage to go where we know God has called us. Courage to not let fear take us off our path. It is good to get it settled once and for all. We are not enough. We're not enough. We actually are inadequate. But that's okay because we're not the one making it happen. Third thought. What do you have in your hand? It's the question God asked the most. This is really a discussion that would be best to have with a small group of Christ followers who know you really well. And if you don't have one of those groups, uh, well... In my opinion, that should be priority number one to pursue this year because that is really important for spiritual growth and living into the person God is calling us to be. But it would really be good to sit down with people who know you really well or who are getting to know you and ask this question of each other. What do you have in your hand? In other words, what do you have that God wants to use? What is it about you? What, 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 what do you have that God can use? And you can respond to that, but other can, people can respond for you as well because sometimes they'll know you better than you know yourself. And a good way to start thinking about this, I think, is to ask the question, what need in this world, what need just in your neighborhood breaks your heart? What causes compassion to rise up within you? Start there. Start there. Talk about that. Because perhaps this is an area where God is calling you to serve. You can start learning about that area. You can listen to people who are part of that issue, that struggle, that injustice, that place of pain. People who are hurting, who are hungry, who are lost, who are marginalized. And you don't go to them with something to offer. You go to them to learn to listen, to be taught by them because we have much to learn. And then as we explore and as we experience the presence of God in in that place, then we will discover many things that we have in our hand. Time, money, wisdom, physical strength, emotional support, love, compassion, presence. And we use whatever gifts, talents, time, resources, strength, wisdom, presence to simply express the love of God in that situation. This was the secret of the early church. The first Christians were not called Christians at first. They were called followers of the way because they walked this certain way, the way of Jesus and his teachings. And it was a beautiful way and it continues to be a beautiful way, the most beautiful of all paths. God is not asking us to give what we do not have. He is calling us, as he called Moses, to give whatever we have in our hands to wherever he is already at work, and he will do the rest. We work hard with whatever we have been given, but we abandon outcome. We leave that in God's hands. One last thought to end with, and this admittedly, I just want to say it up front, is the sappiest of all the thoughts, um, but it's love. And I always feel a little weird saying, using that word, uh, because the word has a bit of a soft, squishy, hallmarky sort of quality to it in, in its modern use, usage. It's not typically a very robust word, sadly. But I think from a biblical perspective, it's the, it's the perfect word here. Love, from a biblical perspective, especially when you're using the Greek word agape, it's a very robust word. It means to be completely about the well-being of the other person. When I love, I bring my will, 
part of me that chooses. I bring my mind, I bring my body, and I bring my emotions and my readiness to act to a person or a group of people in order to seek to bring about the well-being of that person or group of people. At its most pure, it is a totally selfless act. I forget about myself, at least for a few moments. And I am completely about that other person, those people. It's an ecstatic experience, actually. It's a beautiful experience. I've had more and more of those experiences the last few years. And all of us, I believe, if reflect back on our lives, we have had those moments over the years where we have given ourselves over to love. It almost caught us by surprise. And when we are in the midst of that love, that focus on the other, that forgetting of ourselves, we realize this is what we were made for. This is something I hold in my hand that I can give to others. I'm sure I told this story before here, but I, I doubt it has uh, been often. Uh, if, if it has, my sincerest apologies to those who have endured it before. But I take comfort in the fact that increasingly a larger percentage of you don't even know who I am. So for you, at least, I know it's new. But there was a moment a few years ago where I was overwhelmed with love in this moment. It, it opened something up in me that uh, since then I've experienced more, more and more often. This doesn't, I just want to say this, necessarily make me a better person. My, my family members and, and others can easily attend to that, attest to that. But it was a significant moment in my life that I'm trying not to recover from. So here's what happened. I was, I was coming home from one of my trips. I was in uh, Denver Airport. And Denver Airport has this long uh, terminal. You get to the end and where the Sacramento flight, you had to walk down these steps to a narrower terminal and it goes or narrow passageway, and you go all the way down to the end where my uh, flight was to Sacramento. And I'm walking down the bigger one, and if you've been in, like, airports late at night, if you just look around, like, notice, there's a lot of sadness, or maybe the best word is tiredness. People are exhausted. They've missed flights. If they got kids, the kids are done. They're absolutely done. They're, they're rolling on the ground. Their parents don't even care anymore. They eat whatever they find on the floor. They're looking at you just saying, could you take my kid? I don't care. Just send them back in a month or so. I can't handle it anymore. And so it's all these people are exhausted. They're at the counter complaining, all these guys. They're just trying to get home. And um, I get the, you go this, get to the end of the terminal and you go down. And there's at the bottom of the stairwell, there's this open-air bookstore. So I stop there, and I go and buy a magazine. Um, so I, I got a couple-hour flight back to Sacramento, so I'm going to read the magazine. And um, so I get in line, and there are three or four people in front of me. And the person who, the cashier, she had some kind of disability. Uh, I can make guesses as to what it was, but that's unimportant. It made it very difficult for her to handle the pressure uh, and she started getting into repetitive tasks that she was doing over and over again and um, dropping things, and people were trying to get to their flight. And the people in front of me, they just began to talk extremely unkindly about this woman, uh, loud enough for her to hear. And I'm watching this, and all of a sudden, it's, this is not a statement about like I'd been praying all day as a result of my devotion to God. I was just being crabby Kent trying to get home, and I'm sitting there, and something came on me, just came on me. And I don't know how to describe it other than I absolutely loved this woman. I, I, I adored her. I, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to, um, don't believe this sounds inappropriate, but I wanted her to take her home with me to Diane and we could have her be a part of our family. I just wanted to love her and I was unable uh, to do it. I feel that God told me to pray the ironic blessing over her. And if he told me to do it out loud, I disobeyed. So I just, there, that's the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you. Gracious, that thing. So I prayed that for her. And when I got to her, I just started to make conversation, try to encourage her, tell her what a remarkable job she was doing. I, you know, I was helpless. I didn't, couldn't do anything. People were behind me complaining too. But I just felt her as a human being, a sacred, beautiful person. And I did whatever I could, blessed her, and, and, and moved on. But whatever came on me there didn't go away when I left her. It just stayed on me. 
And as I'm walking down the, the, the aisle, um, I just see all these stories in, in, around me. People on the floor, uh, people with kids, you know, older people, thinking about people who are maybe going home to see their, their parent just before the parent dies, or they're going to a funeral, or they're going to some great celebration. And there's all these stories, and these stories came alive to me. And I realized I was walking, the, 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 um, I had no thought about myself. It was like this liberation of not having to think about myself at all. Of course, once I realized that, then I got in trouble because I started thinking about myself, not thinking about myself. Then I got stuck a little bit there. But it, um, it stayed on me, and I realized this is the most beautiful experience in the world. This is what it means to be a human being. This is what Jesus was like, to live every moment of your life consumed for others. To be about the other. Because when we do that, when we lose ourselves, Jesus said, we find ourselves. I became more fully who I was in those moments where the love was on me. I, um, and I know that sounds maybe weird or, or whatever, but I know many of you had sim- have had similar experiences. By the time I got, I got to the, my gate and I sat there for a few moments and, oh goodness, I went way too long. Um, uh, and that, you know, feeling went away and I was Krabby Kent again. But it began, the, the thought in my mind, I'll close with this, is that uh, when, Moses, when God tells him, asks Moses, what do you have in your hand? I mean, this might be one of the most beautiful things we can give. What do I have in my hand? The ability to love. The ability to be about another person and not about myself. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Spirit, um, thank you so much for this teaching from your word. And we know that we carry a lot with us today, a lot of sense of inadequacies. There's all these voices in our minds that tell us all the time that we're not enough. There's all these lies coming through our head that tells us we will never measure up, that we're, you know, we're going to fail. We're not up for the task. But the gift you are giving us here is that our inadequacy is not the issue. It's your power. It's your presence in our lives. And that you have given us gifts that you wish to use to give back to this world that is precious to you. And so we choose to believe that that is true and live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.